This morning we come once again to the study of the Word of God and we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9, but I'd like to read verses 8 through 11 to kind of give you the flow of this particular section of Scripture. I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Categories of Spiritual Gifts, and this will be the first part of that. I want to go through this very carefully because, unfortunately, there's much confusion, and I might add much unnecessary confusion in the church today, not in this church, but in the church at large, over this whole issue of spiritual gifts. So follow along. Let me read to you. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. I wonder if you've ever thought about what a church service would have looked like in the first century, especially at Corinth. They would have probably met in a wealthy patron's home or perhaps outdoors at times. But as we've studied before, the Roman villas that they would meet in would have very formal boundaries that would divide people according to their status. There would be a courtyard and water in the middle, and there would be adjacent rooms around the courtyard that would separate classes of classes of guests and of course the wealthy guests would be the innermost part of where they would meet and and then depending upon your status you would be scattered around from there Jews Gentiles the poor slaves and so forth but also think about it there would be no real order of service like we think about it they wouldn't be handing out bulletins they would probably open in prayer, maybe share some testimonies, but all they had for Scripture was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New. Imagine what that would be like. When Paul was there, he would obviously preach from the Old Testament and then add the special revelation that would later be written in the epistles and so forth. The same thing would have been true with Apollos. But can you imagine what it would have been like when they weren't there or when others met you would have lay people but it would be very hard for them to explain new covenant doctrine and how it related to the old and practical christian living because they didn't have again they didn't have the new testament and we know from paul's description of them that many of the people were self-centered and proud they were divisive they were factious they would slander each other. They were taking each other to court. I mean, we've had issues in our church, as all churches, but we've never had that type of thing happen. They were worldly, Paul says, fleshy, immature babes in Christ. 
They tended to promote jealousy and strife. Therefore, they had an inability to even grasp the deeper things of the Word of God and apply them to their lives. Plus, they were heavily influenced by their idolatrous and immoral culture all around them. So some of them abused their Christian liberty. And then there were others that went to the other extreme that were legalists who held to kind of extreme manufactured preferences they believed made them holier than others. And then they had all kinds of bizarre ideas about marriage, and they confused the male-female relationship. They abused the Lord's table. They would meet together for their love feasts, and some would get drunk and carry on. Ungodly cliques formed. They were alienating the poor. I mean, there's a lot of issues, right? Imagine being in a church like that. And then you add to all of this the cultural baggage that they brought with them into the church from the mystery religions that were all around them and that they were used to practicing, the frenzied hyper-emotionalism of ecstasia that we've studied, and the divination and revelatory dreams and visions of enthusiasmos. You've got all of the ingredients for what we might call charismatic chaos. Some of you have been in those churches. I've visited them before. And then add to this, we know that some of the folks were dissatisfied with their spiritual giftedness and they envied others whom they regarded as having gifts that were, shall we say, more highly favored than theirs. So naturally, being puffed up, they wanted to show off and so they would seek the showier gifts. And we know from our study and we're going to see this as we go on, that this type of chaos began to dominate their services. And we learned that more confusion would arise when multiple people wanted to exercise their gift at the same time, each trying to outperform the other. And Paul's going to let us know in chapter 14 that a lot of the women were out of control. He says, beginning in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And in verse 40, he says, But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now, add to all of that the imposters and the false teachers that were already beginning to influence the church. And you see that the disorder is just building like a volcano. And of course, churches are a magnet for weirdos and phonies and perverts and fruitcakes. And we've had more than our share here. Believe me, I could tell you stories that you literally would not believe. And every pastor can. But folks, with no New Testament, where did they go? to try to get some sanity, to try to understand how are we to conduct ourselves. I mean, there was no 1 Timothy 3 to explain the qualifications of, of elders and deacons. It hadn't been written yet. And they had no understanding of the role of a pastor-teacher. 
Ephesians and other passages hadn't been written. There was no letter, for example, to, that we see to the church at, at Ephesus to help them understand dispensational and ecclesiological issues, to understand doctrinal developments. So on their own, they, they really had no idea how to manage the church or how to conduct a God-honoring worship service or how to even care for the flock. Naturally, some of them were frustrated. They were looking around saying, this is crazy. We have got to have some help. And of course, as we are going to see, one of the worst problems was this manufactured spiritual gift of tongues where people were making up stuff, let me put it that way. While there was a legitimate gift, as we will see, of foreign languages, there were a lot of people that were just consumed with ecstatic gibberish. I mean, folks, the chimpanzees were running the zoo. That's what was going on in the early church. You must understand that. That's why Paul is writing this corrective letter, because the, the mature believers didn't know where to turn. Remember, we read in, in chapter 1, verse 11, that Chloe's people are asking, and there's others that are they, they have to go to the apostles to, to find help. And, of course, that's why we have First and Second Corinthians and other corrective letters. But you know where else they went? to get help, to the proper use of spiritual gifts among the saints. Sunday services required the exercise of the revelatory speaking gifts like prophecy, and, which is really preaching, foretelling of scripture, teaching, even speaking in tongues when it was done properly. It required the serving gifts, for the orderly administration of the church. And of course, Satan is going to do everything he can with his minions to provide counterfeit spiritual endowments for the purpose of producing more disunity and to provide people to participate in what you might call a religious form of American idol so everybody can get up and do their thing. And so there was a lot of disunity, a lot of disorder, jealousy, strife, rampant emotionalism, and every other form of wickedness to thwart the purposes and power of God in the church. That's what Satan was up to. And again, remember, Satan loves spiritual counterfeits. Don't forget that. Remember in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 22, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read about the Antichrist work. And how it will include counterfeit miracles. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, in his Olivet Discourse, that after the abomination desolation, that's when the Antichrist will set up an image of himself in the temple and demand 
that people worship him during the middle part of the tribulation. Jesus says that during that time, false Christs and false apostles will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. And you know what's fascinating is to see how Satan loves to counterfeit the miraculous. And of course, his purpose is always to deceive people through enticing them with promises of power and to believe in this person that's doing these miraculous things who will be a false teacher. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says in verse 14, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, thankfully, we know, for example, in Ephesians 4, uh, there, there, there is the proper use of these spiritual gifts, especially with respect to the, the, the gift of pastor-teacher. And, and his purpose in verses 13 through 16 is to bring, just to bring unity and maturity in the believers and to, to help guard against this type of chaos. And, of course, we've learned that our priority as believers must never be to discover our spiritual gifts or to somehow acquire them through training and practice. And I know some of you have been to those churches. Hey, would you like to learn how to speak in tongues? Sign up here, and we will take you through the course. You know, that, 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 that is just so profoundly unbiblical. But the real issue in Scripture is serving one another and growing in the likeness of Christ. And ultimately, these these wonderfully diverse spiritual endowments will manifest themselves for the edification of the church and the glory of Christ. So as we come to 1 Corinthians 12, just to give you a brief overview, Paul corrects these matters by giving them essentially eight principles. Let me give them to you very quickly. He's going to tell us in Verses 4 through 6, that there are a variety of gifts, ministries, and effects, but they all come from the Holy Spirit. He tells us that the gifts are given for the common good, that all might be edified. Thirdly, that the Holy Spirit grants these gifts according to his sovereign will alone. Number four, the gifts are analogous to the various parts of a human body, where each part is important to its proper function. He's going to... Explain to them how the less spectacular gifts are often just as important as the more spectacular gifts. Number six, he's going to say that Christians must use their gifts to care for one another. Number seven, no one has all the gifts. And number eight, Christians must never desire the more spectacular gifts for selfish reasons. Now, what we have here in verses 8 through 11 is a representative sampling of these gifts. These characterize, frankly, the varieties of the gifts that Paul spoke about in verse 4. And as we look at the New Testament, I believe that the record reveals 18 spiritual gifts. I think this is on the back of your bulletin. Is it not? Is it there? I didn't even look at the back of the bulletin. I usually check to see who's preaching to see if I want to stay or not, but, but it's there. Okay, that's good. And these 18 gifts tend to fall into four general categories. You have the revelatory sign gifts, the confirmatory sign gifts, speaking and serving gifts. 
And the, the revelatory sign gift, just briefly, I just want to give you a brief overview here. They, of course, helped start the church growing. Uh, these gifts provided revelation of previously unrevealed truths and, and the accompanying ability to be able to communicate these truths to the people. And they would do this through inspired messages, through direct revelation. And these, these things were, that they spoke were authoritative. They were binding on the entire body of Christ. And those would be the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. And then second, there were confirmatory sign gifts. In other words, these gifts would confirm what had been revealed, confirm the inspired messages during the first century, the faith, healing, affecting miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And then there are the gifts that are operative today with the possibility that numbers two through six are still operative today in, in some variation. But certainly in group three, you have the speaking gifts that benefited the church, not only in its infancy, but also even to this day and throughout the life of the church until Christ returns. And that's the gift of evangelism, teaching, pastor teaching and exhortation. And then you have the serving gifts that support the speaking gifts to make them more effective. And he gives four basic categories of helps, showing mercy, giving, and governing. Now, you can keep that as just a, a little overview to kind of give you some help as we continue to make this, do this study down through the next probably a couple of months or so. But let's examine more closely these representative gifts that these marvelously diverse gifts that Paul delineates in verses 8 through 11. And, and this morning, I, we're just going to look at, at, at three of them in verses 8 and 9. And we want to be careful to define them only generally and in terms that are used in the text. And, and we also want to remember that these categories are going to look different in everybody's life. And in everybody's ministry, remember, as I've said before, think of them as, as these 18 samples here, uh, these categories, that they're like the primary and secondary colors that you might see on an artist's palette that can be mixed in, in millions of different ways to make different colors. And what a blessed assurance, isn't it, to know that the Spirit has sovereignly ordained to endow each of us with supernatural abilities for his glory, to minister to one another in the church. It's just an absolutely amazing concept. Well, first of all, what's this word of wisdom? Notice verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now, before I try to explain this, I have to tell you a quick story. I remember a number of years ago in my counseling uh, practice down in when I was in Brentwood. Um, I remember there was an Episcopal church that was having a real problem because they would have opportunities for people to come up and, sh and share their gifts. And you can imagine all the stuff was going on. But there were two women in particular that would always have a word of wisdom for the church. And what was really bizarre is when they came up, they would kind of dance with scarves as they shared their word of wisdom. But what began to happen is one lady's word of wisdom would contradict the other one. 
And now people were getting confused. And it basically turned into a cat fight in the church. And some of the people were saying, what should we do? And I said, well, first of all, you need to understand spiritual gifts biblically. And then secondly, you need to ask those ladies to quit doing that. But anyway, so needless to say, you got to be very careful with this gift. Now, it's interesting that Paul lists this gift first in his little sampling of gifts. And then it's immediately followed by a second gift, the word of knowledge. Now, I have to tell you that I'm not real sure if that is significant or not, nor is any other Bible scholar. Moreover, there's no real consensus about the distinction between these two gifts, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. But obviously there is one. Paul's not saying they're one and the same. They're not synonymous terms. So given this, I want to preface everything that I'm saying that, that I cannot be dogmatic. There's some things that, that, that I'll die for. I can't die for this. Nobody can. I can't be dogmatic. But I will offer you my, my very best and most humble scholarship and opinion. I might say that, or you might say that I'm going to provide you with the bucket that has the least amount of holes in it, okay? Does that make sense? Again, notice, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Well, let's look at this closely. The term word in the original language is logos, and it speaks of a rational statement, a proposition, or a sentence. And it could even be conveyed in the compound phrase of, uh, like, articulate utterances or rational statements. And so it's clearly, speak, it's clearly denoting a speaking gift. For example, in John 1, in verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on, we know in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's speaking there of the preexistent, self-existent, uncreated creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became flesh, and he became God's articulate utterance. He became God's rational statement communicating his plan and his purpose in redemption. Now, let's set that aside and let's add to that this concept of wisdom. What, what's he saying with the word wisdom? Well, in the original language, it is Sophia, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to denote the, the communication and practical application of divine truth. For example, speaking of Jesus in Matthew 13, Verse 54, we read that, that he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this, here it is, wisdom and these miraculous powers? And in Acts 6, 10, Acts 6 and verse 10, we read of the Jewish scholars that engaged in a, de in a debate with Stephen. And it says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. By the way, what do you do when you can't out-debate somebody? You do what they did. They stoned him. 2 Peter 3 and verse 15. Peter says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So, and there's many other passages that, that I, could, I could mention, but it's safe to say thus far that the word of wisdom would include direct revelation from God 
and also the special ability to, to have insight into the truths of Scripture, including the ability to communicate it through rational statements and propositions, especially concerning the gospel, which encompasses the entirety of Scripture. Now, why is this listed first? Not real sure. But it may be because it is the most important and most foundational of all of the gifts and the characteristic gift of the apostles who were also listed first in order of importance in the list that God gives us in chapter 12 and verse 28. There we read, and God has appointed in the church first apostles second prophets, third teachers, and so forth. By the way, this list is expanded in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles. Apostles are mentioned first. They are the foundation, okay? They receive direct revelation from God. And then some as prophets, and some as evangelists, which are basically church planners and missionaries, and some as pastors and teachers, which is really pastor-teacher. That's what I am. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So, maybe the parallel arrangements in these two lists infer that the gift of the word of wisdom is primarily reserved for the apostles who were permanently inspired. And, in a lesser way, maybe to the prophets who were intermittently inspired. In Ephesians 2 and verse 20, we read that the household of God, it says, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And it says, Christ, I think I've I've left out a term here, so that you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Now think about this, and there may be another reason why I think this is is a, a, a good possibility. And this has to do with the fact that the concept of wisdom emerges from Paul's use of the term in this very letter. You will recall in chapter 2, he contrasted the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God. Remember that? We studied that. And in verse 3 and following, he described how, quote, he came to them in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he went on to describe how this wisdom was from the Spirit. It wasn't something that he concocted. Verse 6, it says, it was not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. In other words, we didn't get this from philosophers and psychologists and scholars. He said, but we went on to say, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
And then he adds later, yet we do speak wisdom among those who were mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And he says, for to us, God revealed them through the spirit. Then in verse 12, he goes on and says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely that the spirit is from God so that we may know the things freely to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Now, take a deep breath. As we look at this exegesis thus far, I think it's fair to say that the gift of the word of wisdom would certainly include direct revelation from God and a special ability to have insight into the new covenant and the gospel of God, including the ability to communicate that through rational statements and through propositions. Now, folks, without this, the church could have never been formed. People wouldn't even have understood the gospel, much less anything else beyond that. So be wary of women with scarves telling you they've got a word of wisdom, right? You know, as I think about it, I could give you a lot of stories. I remember at at the end of one seminar that I did, a lady came up to me and she said, um, she said, Dr. Harrell, I have a word of wisdom for you. Now, as soon as I hear that, I mean, you know exactly where my mind goes, but you know, I'm going to be nice. And and I said, oh, really? Okay. So what passage of scripture do you want to share with me? Well, and it was so interesting. It really caught her off guard. She said, well, well, what I have to share isn't from the Bible, but it's something that God has impressed upon my spirit. And so I said, really? I've never had that happen to me. How do you know that it's God that's impressing something upon your spirit? And that's kind of where the conversation went. I was very nice, and I let her tell me whatever it was. It was some, it's always some vague and general thing that's always warm and fuzzy. You know, it's never, you know, God has told me that you're a heretic and you need to repent or anything like that. It's always some great thing's going to happen in your life. It reminds me of, of those little cookies that you open up at Panda Express and you pull out some ridiculous thing. You know, that, that's the type of stuff. All right, so there's the, the, the word of wisdom. What about the word of knowledge? Notice again in verse 8, and to another, the word of knowledge. Gnosios, in the original language, uh, we get our word gnosis from that. It carries the idea of, of just the sum and range of what one perceives and what one has learned, what one has discovered. And as I said earlier, there's no consensus whatsoever about any clear distinguish, distinction between logos sophias and logos gnosios. In other words, the word of of uh, or the, the, the gift of, of, the, of the word of wisdom and the, the word of knowledge that we see here, but they can't be synonymous. Now, while the word of wisdom, as we've said, may have 
been unique to the inspired apostles and even the prophets that received direct revelation from God, the word of knowledge is probably best understood as that which was given to preachers and teachers of the word once it was delivered to the saints. It would appear that the distinctive feature of this term knowledge in the original language is is just the, the, the personal apprehension of the mysteries of divine revelation and the ability to skillfully apply it and communicate it, impart it to others. Now, this too would have been revelatory in the beginning era of the church age, as, as I will demonstrate, but it would, would also in, include, beyond just direct revelation, it would include this ability to, to piece together certain aspects of, of the Old Testament truths that pointed to new covenant realities. And of course, this would have been crucial at the early stage of the church in order for them to understand the gospel and to grow in Christ. Paul speaks of this knowledge in other passages. Let me give you a few, because this is very interesting. Romans 6.25, Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. And here's the concept in this term in the original language. It has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Likewise, in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 3, he says that by revelation, there has made known, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let me give you another example in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 25. Paul says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed, here it is, to make known what is the riches of, this, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You may recall in chapter 2, Paul describes how, how he greatly struggled internally to bring believers to a place of spiritual maturity. In verse 2 of Colossians 2, he says that he struggled that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in, here it is, a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, bear in mind, by mystery, Paul is referring to spiritual truths in the New Testament that would have never been understood had not the Lord revealed them. And apart from a word of knowledge, no man would ever be able to grasp these mysteries much less preach and teach them, much less apply them to the lives of believers. Now, Paul obviously had this gift, as did the apostles, as did the prophets, and I believe other 
other members in the early church, and probably many people today. And I find it fascinating, too, a little bit of a sidetrack here, but I think it's important. Paul says that, that he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, what did that preaching of the word of God include? And we're in Colossians 1, 25 through 7 here. He says, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the point. Very fascinating text. Doctrinal content was always at the very heart of Paul's preaching. If you study the, preacher, the preachers in the New Testament, whether it's Stephen, whether it's Paul, whether it's, it's Peter, you will always see doctrinal content in the preaching. He was made a steward to do that. He was given the gifts to do that. And as stewards of these mysteries, he says in verse 27 that he preached the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, referring to the surpassing riches of the indwelling Christ by the Holy Spirit that we read about in other passages. But these mysteries also included the mystery of the gospel. I've given you a little list here, Ephesians 6:19, the mystery of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8 through 12, the great mystery of concerning Christ and the church, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, the mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Also the mystery of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 9. The mystery that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Romans 11, 25 through 36. And also the mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation 17, 5. Now again... This gift that was given to them, the knowledge to, to, to even understand it and communicate it, included understanding this mystery, mysterion in the original language. And this does not refer to some mystical, enigmatic philosophy that's only known to a few special initiates. But it describes, again, that which has been kept secret in the past and cannot be known until God reveals it. So it refers to the revelation of the will and the purposes of God that's given to believers in the New Testament, namely the gospel. And sadly, very few preachers today share Paul's stewardship commitment to preach these mysteries concerning Christ and all of his glory. Mysteries which Paul said in Colossians 1.25, God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now, obviously, there, there are people, unfortunately, in positions of leadership, especially pastors and teachers, even in seminaries and Bible colleges that do not have this gift, the word of knowledge. And instead, what you have are pul pulpits filled with entrepreneurs and showmen and even con artists. And sadly, I've, I've talked with many believers who know nothing of even these basic mysteries. They know nothing of them. And worse yet, they don't care to know anything about that. What difference does that make, they will say. Many professing Christians today are like the, the self-deceived Israelites who came to Jeremiah. Remember, they came to Jeremiah under the pretense of wanting to know the truth of God. 
promising in Jeremiah 42, 6, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God. But once they learned what God would have them do, they became obstinate and defiant, more defiant than before, further away than ever from obeying the command of God. And you read about that in Jeremiah. But Paul explained again that the responsibility of, of, of this letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, is to speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom from God ordained before the ages for our glory. And the grammar here, and even in that text, tells us that there is a, an extreme contrast, the most extreme possible that, that the Greek can use is an extreme contrast between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And it's in the emphatic position in the Greek, which emphasizes both supernatural possession and supernatural source. That the wisdom that God has given us, it belongs to him and it comes from him. And the way he communicates it to his people is through those whom he has gifted to do so. That's the point. So those with the gift of the word of knowledge understood these things and they proclaimed these things. And of course, this is crucial for apologists today and pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers and on and on it goes so that people can look at the word of God and they can, they, 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 they can see what the text is saying in its context. They can look at, 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 at the words and the phrases and the syntax and they can understand these passages and these great truths in such a way as to be able to communicate them and help others to understand the glory of God in the face of Christ and live to his glory. Obviously, many people in the first century did not have this gift. And that's okay, but there were those that did. The same thing is true today. Many people today don't understand the mysteries of Christ. And, they, you know, they'll look at Scripture and say, I just don't see these things. Well, that's okay. You just need to rely heavily upon others that do have that gift. And isn't it wonderful that not everybody's a kidney in the body, right? Now, again, imagine the level of insanity that would have existed in the early church prior to the written New Testament canon if this spiritual gift had not been given. (laughs) By the way, if you can't imagine what it would be like, I can take you to some churches where it doesn't exist, and it's just just bedlam. I mean, people just make up stuff. It's heartbreaking to see it. They torture texts to get them to say things that they were never intended to say. I've been to Bible studies where it's obvious that no one had this gift. And they weren't depending upon people that had this gift. And so it's the pooling of ignorance and human opinions. No one's able to really see the truth and articulate it. The articulate utterance of divine wisdom is replaced by the articulate utterance of human hogwash in many cases. It's like everybody sharing their opinion. Of course, you know all about opinions, right? They're like noses. Everybody's got one. Now, the question is, does some measure of of the gifts of wisdom and knowledge still exist today? Well, perhaps they do. It can't be dogmatic. However, no one, now catch this, no one receives direct revelation from God. That is always a mark of a charlatan. 
By the way, if you, you, you look at the cults and those that founded the cults, they received some special revelation outside of Scripture. Mary Baker Eddy with Church of Christ Scientist. Ellen White with the Seventh-day Adventist. Joseph Smith with the Mormons. Charles Taz Russell with the Jehovah's Witnesses. One that's closer to home, Ellis Cooper back in 1954 over here in Cookville. The United Pentecostal Church. And it's sad that there, folks, there's today a proliferation of these people. And, and, and sadly, it's, it's really heavy uh, among many women preachers and teachers and best-selling authors. Let me just think of the, some of the women that claim they get direct revelation from God. I think of Joyce Meyer and Paula White, Sarah Young, Beth Moore, and her disciple Priscilla Schreier, and numerous other celebrity preachers and best-selling authors just all over the place. John MacArthur says this, the human writers of Scripture had the gift of knowledge in a unique way. God gave them truths directly, which they recorded as part of his written word. But since the closing of the canon of Scripture, however, that gift has not involved the receiving of new truths, but only understanding of truth previously revealed. Anyone today who claims to have a divine revelation is a deceiver and contradicts God's own word, which expressly warns that if anyone adds to or takes away from it, he will suffer God's judgment, Revelation 22:18. And finally, he says, any word of divine knowledge or wisdom must be based on the word of God, quote, once for all delivered, Jude 3. We are to contend earnestly for, as the Greek says, the once for all delivered to the saints faith, the word of God. Now, folks, you just must understand that we've got to be discerning. There's false teachers everywhere. Some of them are witting, as I say, and some of them are unwitting. I, I got one just this week. Let me read this to you. It's an email from a charismatic pastor that I've interacted with a few times in, in, in Kenya. And this is real indicative. Here's what he says. John chapter 5, verse 4. It says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Right? Passage of Scripture there. And here's what he says. I was on my way to go and pray this evening, and as I was singing, walking to the nearby church hall, this verse came to my heart. Before I began prayers, I read it, and the Lord gave me a great revelation about it. Great. Got to be careful here. And I quickly noted down the three points. Number one, the angel of the Lord came down. Number two, the angel came down during some seasons. Number three, the first person who stepped in the water got healed. Okay. Therefore, he says, I prayed for you as follows. Number one, may God assign angels to attend to you in a special way today. Number two, may the season of your blessings and victory come in Jesus' name. And number three, may God give you strength to be the first one to enter. Be blessed in the Lord as God is watching and ready to bless and fight for you today. We love you in any signs his name. You know, it's sad. I mean, that text has nothing to do with any of that. And this is what happens when dear saints are maybe well-meaning, but they're, they're, they're uneducated they're, or they've been deceived, they've been taught improperly, and certainly they don't have 
the gift of the word of knowledge. And I might also add, like, with, with all of the gifts, there, in every individual Christian, there's going to be a continuum of giftedness. Some are going to be more gifted than others, but all are going to be gifted in various ways to minister in the body of Christ. But all of the gifts are spirit-energized abilities that God has given to the saints for the purpose of putting his glory on display for ministering to one another. But he especially did this during that transitional period between the old covenant and the new covenant program, the establishing of the church and all of this. And, and I believe that as, as we go on, many of these gifts are still operative today. Well, let's look at one more briefly and then we'll close That is the gift of faith. He says, to another faith by the same spirit. Now, you won't see this in your English translation, but the Greek term translated another, heteros in the original language, that that Paul uses here is a stronger word that he used for another in verse 8. There he used alos, not heteros. And this indicates that The introduction now is going to take place of a new and a different grouping of people, specific individuals who were different from and and apart from other than other Christians or even the majority of believers. And as we look at this, it's, it's, it's safe to assume that this speaks of a specific gift given to specific people. I mean, we all have the gift of faith and salvation, but this is something beyond that. The gift of faith, we believe, is an extraordinary trust in overwhelming situations that seem impossible. Those with this gift were ones that could trust God in the face of insurmountable challenges like martyrdom, knowing that God would prove himself powerful on their behalf in ways that they couldn't even imagine. Like Peter, think about this. I was talking with a brother the other day. Peter served Christ for 40 years knowing he was going to be crucified. And that took the gift of faith, wouldn't it? Think about that. Such faith enabled men and women to stand firm in the faith, even in the face of torture and death like the martyrs that we, we read about in, in Hebrews 11, 33 and following, where the Spirit obviously empowered them. So these were saints, that, as today, who, who lived in the presence of God and who, who trusted in Him in ways that were remarkable as the Spirit of God gave them a special ability to have confidence in the Lord. These would have been like the, the, the mustard faith variety. Remember that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 17, verse 20, how that variety of faith even can unleash the power of God to accomplish his purposes. Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. And Paul even alluded to, the, to this later in the same text. In chapter 13, verse 2, he says, if I have all faith, in other words, if I have all of the faith, not just some of it, but all of it, which indicates there, there, may be, there may be a stratification here of the gift. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like, especially in the first century, to live in, in that culture, 
especially you come to Christ and you may lose your family, lose your job, lose your life. Put your family's life in jeopardy. Imagine what that would be like. Without this supernatural endowment, the church would have never survived. Well, let me challenge you this week in closing. First of all, just to to spend some time with your family, certainly alone, but with your family as well, just, just to thank God for the great lengths he has undertaken to somehow reveal himself to us. Just think about that. Where would we be if we didn't have his word and the gifts of his people? Where would we be? And to thank him for all the people that he has brought into your life, to be a part of your life, to help you not only see who Christ is, but to help you grow in his grace and in his knowledge. And then also take inventory of your own life. Am I ministering to other people? And therefore using whatever gifts God has given me. And am I actively engaged in worshiping and serving in the body of Christ? And then you want to ask yourself the question, is God blessing my area of service? If not, perhaps I'm functioning outside the realm of my giftedness. Or perhaps there is sin in my life and I have grieved the spirit, perhaps quenched the spirit. And he's not blessing me in my endeavors. Whatever it is, examine your heart. And then again, just celebrate all that God has done for us. Well, I know this has been technical, and I hope that, that, that it's been helpful. But as you think about these things, realize we need to be very careful as we examine these passages of Scripture and not get, not get too rigid with our interpretation, but at least be in the ballpark within the realm of legitimate hermeneutics and exegesis, right? That, that's our purpose here. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that just speaks to our hearts. We can all just rejoice in seeing the great links that you have gone to to reveal truth to us so that we might not only be saved but be sanctified and be blessed in ways that we can't imagine. And Father, for those who are a part of our church family that may not know you as may not know Christ as Savior and, 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 and may just be playing a religious game or, or whatever it is. Oh, Father, please, by the power of your Spirit, bring conviction to their heart and save them by your grace. Help us all to grow in you as a church, and may we all minister to one another for the glory of Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.